everyone. Welcome to the Film for Fans podcast, your home for movie news, reviews, and movie fan views. I am your host, Ryan Dunleavy, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Rob Dunham. Hey, everybody. I'm in Virginia, and there are balls bouncing outside the door, so you might hear some balls slam into the wall. It's possible my children are throwing many inflatable balls down the stairs. So we'll do our best to keep that on the down low. Well, just remember, dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. Yes, yes. But if, hopefully they don't throw any wrenches because I'm not as good at dodging them, even though they say that you should be able to dodge a wrench if you can dodge a ball. If you can dodge traffic, you can dodge a ball. True, but I don't know if I can dodge traffic either. I don't know about that either. All right. Maybe we should <laughs> talk about What do you think? What was that? Maybe we should talk about movies. What do you think? Well, I suppose if we have to. I mean, it this is, is a movie podcast. <laughs> yes. All right. I guess we should talk about movies. So we have an excellent show once again in store for you now that we're back on track. And we're going to talk about box office results. Uh, what's upcoming this week? Of course, we will have to mention Christopher Nolan, our favorite topic of conversation, except for possibly Nicolas Cage. True. We will talk about movies that most exemplify New York and, of course, our watch list. All right, Rob, let's get on the box office results. So last week at the box office, to the surprise of nobody, Shang-Chi once again was number one. 34 million it took in this week. And that brings its two week total to 144 million to top the box office. We have Free Guy coming in at 5.6 million, now mm-hmm. having topped $100 million. Number three was the opener Malignant with 5.4, Candyman 4.8, and Jungle Cruise rounding out the top five for its 900th straight week. At 2.3 million. I feel like that's a slight exaggeration. Only It has felt like it's been out literally the entire summer. Yeah. I think it actually has been out the entire summer. (laughs) Making money little by little. I know. Go figure. All right. Well, that means that there are three movies that are out right now that are over, have made over a hundred million dollars. Interesting. Uh, so what do you make of the box office results? Um, see, Shang-Chi did not take nearly the dip that Black Widow did. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you make of that? I think there's something obviously there to be made about the fact that um, Shang-Chi is not available on streaming mm-hmm. platform. And it seems like we've seen that with the bigger movies that have been out. We see it with Free Guy, too. Yeah, that um, some of these bigger studio movies that don't have a streaming option are making better money uh, with the continued theatrical release. They're not stagnating or dropping like 70 percent after one week because Mm -hmm. the word of mouth is spreading and people are actually using that word of mouth to go to the theater, not just to fire up their streaming device and go on to their HBO Max subscription and watch the movie. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And uh, lesson to all of you movie executives, put your movies in theaters, and that's it. Don't delay them. Yeah. I think the other thing we're seeing is that um, horror movies continue to do pretty well, and that 
it almost seems like horror movies might be like um, situation proof. <laughs> like you put a horror movie out, it's going to make five to ten million dollars on the opening weekend. Just if it's any good, it seems like that's just the trend, and that's good for horror studios because the movies don't cost that much to make. Yeah, and that's the funny thing about horror movies is they draw a big audience, but you don't need a huge budget to make one. I mean, after all, I mean, you saw, I mean, some of the biggest horror movies have been more indie releases that have had almost no budget. Mm-hmm. You know, what was it? Uh, uh, which one was the one where they were running around in the woods? Uh, the, um, the Blair, Blair Witch, Witch Project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah, Blair, Blair Witch, Witch Project. That's a new mm-hmm. prime example of that. Yeah. But yeah. They, they're, they're good profit margins because they don't cost a lot and they make a lot of money and people seem to like them. Mm-hmm. I don't particularly know why, but hey, you know. Do people we like to be scared, I guess, because the world is not scary enough, apparently. <laughs> but I will, I will say that Candyman, which made 4.8 again this week, was very well done. And uh, I've heard good things about Malignant, too. So it's not like these are movies that are not quality. I think they're quality. They're just um, aimed at a specific audience. So, yeah, and Malignant was one that did have a streaming option. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one debuted on HBO Max uh, simultaneous release. So, 5.4 with the simultaneous release is a pretty good number. Yeah. Office for definitely. Uh, so, that should, that should uh, boost that. Now, it makes you wonder what it would have done without the streaming option, but, you know, to each his own. I wonder if I wonder if in particular Warner Brothers, I know they've committed to it through 2021. I wonder if they're not rethinking that a little bit. I wonder if they're not going to try and uh, do something about that. Yeah. Yeah. You wonder how much they might have rewritten the contracts or changed Mm -hmm. how uh, the release is, you know, organized with the directors and everyone involved. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I guess we, we can uh, we'll get a little bit more into Warner Brothers, I think, when with our uh, our later news story here. Uh, but that's uh, anything else on the mm-hmm. box office from last week. I just think it's uh, we continue to see fairly positive results. I think that people are coming out to the movies by no means is it back to uh, pre-pandemic levels every week, but people are venturing out. There's more and more engagement and a wide variety of movies people are going to see. So mm-hmm. uh, it seems like there's some positive movement here. So it's exciting to see. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of numbers Bond pulls. Yeah. That will be that will be fascinating to see. I bet it's going to have a big release. I, mm-hmm. I, I bet it's going to be big. All right. Well, that was last week. So this week we have three major releases coming out into theaters. None of them are huge releases, uh, but they all have their own kind of, uh, it's, there's something for multiple genres this week. Uh, so the first one coming out is Cry Macho. This is Clint Eastwood. Yes, Clint Eastwood is still making movies. That dude just doesn't quit. Uh, one-time rodeo star and washed-up horse breeder takes a job to bring a young man's son home and away from his alcoholic mom. On their journey, the horseman finds redemption through teaching the boy what it means to be a good man. So coming-of-age Western type, type story with uh, Clint Eastwood going back to some of his so, roots in the Westerns. So Grand Torino with horses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. 
<laughs> Clint Eastwood is doing Clint Eastwood things. Yes. Unsurprisingly. Not not quite the same as Liam Neeson doing Liam Neeson things. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. Or Nicolas Cage just being an insane person. Yeah. Well, that that's guaranteed. Like, there's no getting away from that. All right. The second one coming out is uh, Blue Bayou. And uh, this one stars Justin Chong and Alicia Vikander. And as a Korean-American man raised in the Louisiana Bayou works hard to make a life for his family, he must confront the ghosts of his past as he discovers that he could be deported from the only country he has ever called home. So Blue Bayou, that's your second one. And the third one, and that seems more like a drama, like a, like a drama uh, movie for you if you like drama. And the third one definitely seems to be more uh, rowdy, uh, violent action. And that is Cop Shop. Cop Shop stars uh, Frank Grillo, Gerard Butler, amongst others. And this movie is... Uh, about a man on the run from a lethal assassin, a wily cotton artist devises a scheme to hide out inside a small town police station. But when the hitman turns up at the precinct, an unsuspecting rookie cop finds herself caught in the crosshairs. All right, Rob. Of the three, what's your most intriguing one? I would say that of the three, I'm most interested by Blue Bayou just because I really like Alicia Vikander mm-hmm. as uh, an actress. I think she's very talented. Uh, the story seems like an interesting one to me. And I generally prefer drama over action. So I think that's where I'm leaning. But I'm also interested by uh, Cop Shop because I really like Gerard Butler as well. Mm-hmm. So it'll be <laughs> interesting to see uh, what he does because he's playing the bad guy in this movie for what i take it hitman so i like i like to see what gerard butler will do as well yeah i'm intrigued by cop shop i think there's a chance that uh if it's done right if it's done well this could be something of uh i, I i'm I, I don't know if this is true but I, i'm feeling a little bit of um if you, there was a oh, what was that movie unknown a while back um, where there were a bunch of, it was a more of the indie unknown where there was a bunch of a uh, bunch of people who woke up with no memories and they're trying to figure out who's who, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. They're locked in a room. You know, you could do something cool like that with a lock, like kind of a locked room mystery or, um, or even an inside man type. type mm-hmm. If it's done, if it's done right, if it's done well, um, I don't know. So I, I'm intrigued by it, but I, I think I'm in the mood for a good, solid action movie. Uh, it's, it's been a while yeah, since I've seen that. it. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm intrigued by Cop Shop. I'm gonna, I'm, I might check that one out this week. All right. So that's the box office, what's coming out this week. Of course, if you haven't seen Shang-Chi, Free Guy, Malignant, Candyman, any of those, they are still out in theaters as well. Uh, make sure you check them out in theaters. All right, one last news story, and it's a big one. The king of the directors has announced his new movie. <laughs> According to us, at least. Well, Because this is a Christopher Nolan podcast, apparently. This is a Christopher Nolan fan podcast, yes. <laughs> <laughs> also, given the clout he has, when studios come chasing after you for your next movie, yeah, yeah. 
your kingly status has been achieved. So yes, you have this, this article. Is to, you have this article ought to read these details because they're like insane to me. They are insane. Yes, we're yeah. going to cover some of the details on this, some of this stuff. Uh, but Christopher Nolan has a new movie, and it's going to be a biopic about Oppenheimer, which is fascinating. That's this is really interesting. Um, let's start. Let's start there real fast before we get into the the frenzied pitch from studios to try and get Nolan on board. Uh, what do you think about Nolan doing a biofilm on Oppenheimer? Uh, I think it's interesting. I don't think there's been many movies done about Robert Oppenheimer. And the one I can think of is Fat Man and Little Boy, which was a movie about the process that went into designing the H-bombs that were used in World War II. And I don't think there have been many opportunities. Hey, this is Keith, by the way. Hey, Keith. Hey, Keith. <laughs> uh, to really get into his backstory or what made him tick or anything about him, Keith is over my other shoulder now. <laughs> He's always there. He's always watching. If you ever watch our podcast, Keith is always there. He's breathing on me now. This is awkward. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to see more about that in fat man and little boy he was played by dwight schultz um my head is being touched now also paul newman was in that john cusack and laura dern and if you have not seen fat man and little boy 1989 i would recommend checking it out my voice is now being projected through Keith's head. um <laughs> but yeah i'm excited to see what they do with this going forward be thankful you cannot see what is happening on the other side of the screen what, what's your take on this, Ryan? <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting to me. I, I I love all the films that Nolan does. I really prefer his his more sciencey, out there original stories. Uh, I really, really, really enjoy those. But I'm interested to see what his take will be on on a on a personal piece, on a bio piece. It's, it's fascinating to see what he's going to be able to do with that, how he's going to bring his unique style to it. Uh, if you remember with Dunkirk was a different one for him, and he brought his unique style through how he directed the timelines uh, through that. So it will be fun to see what he does with it. Uh, Oppenheimer is, of course, an incredibly fascinating character who has an absolute wealth of, of information about him in terms of like, places to go with the story i mean he is he is uh he is an incredibly intriguing character so it will be fun to see what he does with it all right so now let's get to the details so christopher nolan announced he's going to direct this film and studios started lining up to try and woo him now, it's not known whether Warner Brothers was even attempted to get this film. But the first thing you have to realize is he has been with Warner Brothers for a long time. He's had a long working relationship with Warner Brothers. Now, having heard a lot of the things he has said about Warner Brothers in recent years, especially around the release of Tenet and his thoughts on Warner Brothers' decision to do their streaming model, which we have talked about at length, 
I am not at all surprised that Warner Brothers is not in the mix for this one. What did you what did you make of uh, the the breakup between Nolan and Warner Brothers? Well, if you remember uh, when HBO Max and Warner Brothers announced that they were going to do this model with HBO Max same day releases, Christopher Nolan called them the worst streaming service ever. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> so, uh, that may have been a sign that things were not going to go super well in the near future. Yeah. And uh, it's not surprising at all. I mean, the guy is in major demand. Mm-hmm. We talked about last week how although the numbers for Tenet looked like they weren't great with the results of everything else that has come out since they're looking pretty good now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes a lot of sense that he wouldn't be thrilled to want to keep working with them. And the interesting thing this article pointed out is Warner has been known as these like director studio, like the studio that directors want to go to that caters to them. Yeah, And the fact that one of the major directors is basically like, I'm just going to date everyone and whoever <laughs> gives me the most I'm going to go with. Uh, so like Apple, Universal, Paramount, like a whole bunch of different studios showed up. And do you want to go over the details of what he asked for? Because to me, it's like nuts. <laughs> but apparently Universal agreed to it. So. And yeah, one more comment on Warner Brothers, and then we can get into the details on the on the chase of Christopher Nolan. And, and that's just that I think he was so fed up with them. He basically tried to bully them into getting his movie out because he was so sick of it. And he was so sick of dealing with all the uh, risk averse executives over at Warner Brothers that he just had enough. And I am not at all surprised they're gone. But yeah. Uh, let's look at the details. This is this is kind of the opening offer of what it would take to get Christopher Nolan's film onto your studio. Rob, do you want to hit up the, some of the details here? Uh, I don't have the article pulled up to you. Okay, I'll, I'll pull it. I have it up. I'm on my uh, phone. So if I pull it up, it will make my screen black. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to do that. Okay. Okay. Uh, let me see here. Okay, so he wants a hundred million dollar budget, which is actually not that not that big of a deal. Uh, so he's got a hundred million dollar budget. He wants total creative control, twenty percent of first dollar gross. He wants a blackout period from the studio, wherein the company would not release another movie three weeks before or three weeks after his release. So he wants a six week window surrounding his movie. And he asked for a 100-day theatrical window. Now, there's some dispute as to whether it's 110 days or 130 days, but about 100 days, theatrical studio, theatrical window. Now, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. Even now, for what's funny is he was a great director. They're basically saying that uh, he was accustomed to basically getting all of this at Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. which is pretty interesting. Uh, now they said it's it's interesting. It's not they're not sure if it's known how how much he will stick with that because I mean is it really a big deal if the studio releases like a cartoon, you know, two weeks after it releases his movie because they're not exactly going to draw the same audiences. But he's Christopher Nolan; he can demand it. So what did what did you think about that? I mean, let's be honest, Minions would probably be a big threat to a movie like Inception, so. 
Um, I think it's very interesting to see the curtain pulled back here and to see yeah. exactly what he was getting from Warner. If this, if this is true for to believe it, mm-hmm. I never really thought about all the machinations behind that, like everything that went into that, how much a director of that caliber could demand. And the fact that so many different studios are interested in him shows the power that he has. I mean, we've talked about him a lot in the podcast, but the reason is that he's probably the most powerful director around right now because people want to be associated with him. And I'm sure that some executive at Warner got fired <laughs> over this. <laughs> fired over this. <laughs> we have lost the exclusivity with Christopher Nolan. It's mm-hmm. going to be a rough thing for them. And it will be interesting to see if it's the same kind of tenor and feel with the movie that comes out on Universal. And like you said, there haven't he hasn't done much when it comes to historical period work. We've seen Dunkirk, but that's pretty much it. Everything else has been either mind-bending or sci-fi kind of feel. So I'm very intrigued by the subject matter with Oppenheimer. So I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah. And in the chase, Paramount, Paramount went out early. They're having, uh, they've had some executive shakeups and uh, the studio basically fired a guy who was much more about the theatrical experience and hired a guy who was much more about the streaming experience. Mm-hmm. So that right there was going to be a, uh, probably a death knell to signing Christopher Nolan. Uh, Apple actually made a really big push for, for getting Nolan, which would really, really made them a major player. They've, they've kind of, uh, it was only recently that they've really, really started trying to push to get some major talent in and major releases going. Uh, but the, it seems like the hang up them, they weren't really wanting to commit to a hundred day theatrical window. It seems like the theatrical window is an issue there with Apple. Sony tried and Sony really wanted it. And they've had, Sony has had success working with Quentin Tarantino, which would probably be a close, which would probably be a close proximity to uh, no working with Nolan because Tarantino just basically does whatever he wants. Um, sometimes to the detriment of his own films, but uh they were, they were in it till the end, but they didn't get there. The winner was Universal. What do you make of the fact that Universal was the one that came out on top on this one? Um, I don't know if I have any specific thoughts about Universal being the one who ended up winning, other than they seem to me to be more established. Like you said, Apple was in the running for it for a while, and Paramount is a big studio, but I don't see it on the level of Universal. So when Warner dropped out, really it was going to have to go to one of the majors, and I, I'm i not surprised it's Universal who ended up with it. I don't really have any specific mm-hmm. thoughts about what that means for them or the other studios other than it's good for them and bad for the other ones. <laughs> I have no idea what's happening next to and behind me, just so you know. I just know that they're laughing and my wife is laughing over there and at me. So this is, this is the professional podcast that we strive to record every week. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> well, some of the things they cited for Universal was that they've actually 
they've been the landing place of several other uh, disgruntled Warner Brothers properties and directors uh, since the pandemic started. They've also had excellent, robust uh, theatrical output even during the pandemic. Um, I think they have the Fast, uh, the Fast and Furious movies. Um, and they've had some really innovative release strategies. So they're kind of on the cutting edge in the studio that's doing the best job with the theatrical experience under, the, under these circumstances. And, and you talked about stability. There's definitely more stability here. Uh, one of the things with MGM, because since they've just been bought up by Amazon, they don't have quite as much stability. And Universal wins it. I saw, I saw this was pretty funny. Um, as Nolan is known for trying to do all of, uh, actually do all of the stunts in his movies, there was a, a joke going around that uh, he went with Universal because they were the only studio that would let him actually detonate a nuclear bomb. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And they probably will. And we're all going to die. Thank you, Christopher yeah. Nolan. Yep. <laughs> I can, I can just see him. See, it was like, all right, we're going out in space. We're going to detonate a nuke. <laughs> we're going to actually not, film this. I would not be surprised. And I'm also horrified by that idea, but it would not shock me at all if he actually did that. No, right? He's the same person. I mean, he keeps trying to go crazier and crazier with his uh, real life stunts. So, yeah, it's going to be impressive. And and I think I think Nolan will lead the way out of this in some way, shape or form. Um, and it's I mean, it is a risk because, you, you know, nobody still knows what it's going to look like. I mean, this movie is going to come out in 23 or 24 sometime. Uh, so you're never quite sure what is going to everything is going to look like. But Nolan is committed to the box office and it seems like Universal is, too. And I am grateful for them for doing it. Uh, anything else on this one? I don't think so. All right. Well, let's move on to our discussion topic. So last week was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And we didn't really, we didn't hit on it on the podcast. But one thing I was thinking of is um, New York is one of the big movie destinations. So many movies take place in New York, are set in New York, have scenes in New York. It's just such a huge part of the movie landscape. So I thought we'd take a moment and discuss some movies that we thought kind of exemplify New York, not just like have a scene in New York, but really you get a sense of New York from having watched the movies. Uh, so let's let's bat this back and forth. We've both got some ideas of some movies we think do a great job exemplifying New York, portraying New York. So what, what do you got? I'll let you uh, go, go back and forth on this. Well, the first one I thought of was Inside Man. Mm. Spike Lee, which is um, based around the New York Stock Exchange, based around a bank. Um, and all of Spike Lee's movies pretty much are New York centric. In fact, mm. I'm pretty sure that Spike Lee said about Inside Man that New York was the main character in the movie when it came out, because the very opening scene with the credits has this hip hop song that comes on. And it's just shots of all these different exteriors of New York, which most of them don't even end up being in the movie. But I think that he was doing that to set like this, this is where this is happening. This is where everything important happens. That's how Spike Lee thinks at least, I think. 
everything important happens in New York. Um, he's also a Knicks fan, so he's not exactly the smartest person in the world sometimes. Right. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Inside Man, uh, starring Clive Owen, Denzel Washington. It's a great movie, and you really you really do get that feel of New York City mm-hmm. from that movie, and just the pace and the frenetic nature of it, and the never stopping feeling of the city. So I'd say Inside Man, Spike Lee. I think that's a good one. I think the scene that most exemplifies it is when they're trying to figure out what language is coming through the loudspeaker. They're like, I just put it out in the street. Somebody out there will know it. Yeah. (laughs) And of course there was a guy in the crowd who knew it. Yep. Mm -hmm. The melting pot. Yep. Uh, The first one on my list is the walk. The walk, of course, this is most directly relates um, to 9-11 because the walk is the movie about um uh what is his name um philippe petit philippe Mm. he was the guy who actually strung a high wire between the two towers of the twin towers and walked across it he did an illegal wire walk across it there was a documentary that was put out with him a number of years ago uh about the actual walk but this is the movie it's a dramatized movie about about him and about what happened and so it does just perfectly symbolize it it does a great job of bringing back like what the towers were what the towers became and just his love and his fascination with them and his fascination with new york and and the role the buildings play within the life of new york city you just get a tremendous sense of of the people of new york and the role the architecture and the the role those buildings in particular played. Um, and so they're, they're, not, they're not super heavy handed about the nostalgic aspect of it, but I think they really do hit on the point of, of what they meant to the city. Uh, and, and it's just a cool movie. It's a very cool movie. And it was shot exceptionally well by Robert Zemeckis. And I saw it in uh, IMAX 3D and you really did feel like you were on the edge of the buildings. I mean, if you're, if you have height issues, this one, this will mess with you. Is that Joseph Gordon-Levitt? Remember that yes. correctly? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Really. Um, yeah. I would say that um, we didn't really talk about it. Like you said last week, but uh, with September 11th, just thinking about it with the twin towers, they were the first thing I always saw when I went into New York. Uh, you could see them from New Jersey. First thing you always saw. And the first time I remember driving in when they were not there, it just felt empty. And um, I was on a choir tour at the time and a bunch of my friends went down to check out the site. I couldn't even go because it was too much Yeah, for me. Um, so a movie like that, that really brings back what they meant and resonates is a powerful thing for sure. Um, I would say another one that I think of, and I talked about it last week, uh, it's Gangs of New York. Hmm. And that movie, not related to anything that's current, but just related to the history, the history of the city and the nature of bringing a whole bunch of different cultures together, sometimes for good, sometimes for not so good in that movie. Um, it's a city built on conflict. We still see that today, but I think that that movie really exemplifies it. And I love the end of the movie, mm. how it shows it set in that time, then moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. 
until there's the city there and that everything is built on what those people did. So it's not exactly 100% historical, obviously, but there is a lot of history in the movie. And I, I love that movie. I love long drama. I love when people actually tell their story and that movie probably better than any I've seen tells the story. Mm. And Daniel Day-Lewis is fantastic in that movie as Bill the Butcher. Um, I mean, the man just disappears into his characters. I don't even know it's him sometimes when I'm watching. And he just is phenomenal in that. So I would say Gangs of New York is another one that I would recommend that exemplifies not so much what the city is now, but what the city's soul is, was, and still is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go, I'm going to double up with, uh, with one. I'm going to go with two romantic comedies that I think do a great job of exemplifying New York. From Gangs uh, of New York to romantic comedies. This is I know, the right? That's right. The diversity on here is great. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to go with You Got Mail and Hitch. You Got Mail and Hitch. The, the great things about this is that both these movies do a fantastic job using New York as a setting. You get the feel of what it's like to live in New York City um, and, and how the city becomes your front yard. As, as it were, the city becomes your playground. Um, one of the things I live in, a, I live in Lancaster City, it's a small city, but we don't have a lot of space, but we end our, the city becomes our entertainment. When people, when we hang out with friends and say, hey, they'll come into the city, we'll take them out to restaurants, we'll take them to a different place to get dessert. We'll, you know, we'll hang out on rooftops and things like that. And this is exactly what both these two movies do is is you see, and you've got mail, they're walking on the streets of New York. They're, um, they're in the markets. They're at cafes. Um, the whole fight is, is over uh, his giant big bookstore coming in, muscling out her little, her little mom and pop bookstore. And just that conflict of the, of the city always changing, big things coming versus the history and the nostalgia pieces. Uh, really, really good. And the same thing with Hitch. Hitch uses Hitch uses New York as its setting. Um, best exemplified where he takes, uh, Will Smith takes uh, Ava Mendez on their first date and they go jet skiing on the Hudson and follow that up by going to Ellis Island and touring Ellis Island. Of course, it's a complete disaster. Uh, but so their dates become become this huge deal, and all of that is just the things you experience in New York as you as you live your life in New York. So I think they do a really really good job of that. Um, I think I'll just briefly mention one more, and that's Breakfast at Tiffany's. Because mm. I'm in love with Audrey Hepburn, so just can't help it. And that movie is yes, I know she's dead. <laughs> that movie is. Uh, the perfect example to me of her grace and Tiffany's being the major lodestone it is in New York and so connected to the city. I just, I've really enjoyed watching that movie as well. So I don't have a, a huge in-depth analysis to make on that one, but I just wanted to mention it. Uh, for me, the last one I'll go with is Elf. 
<laughs> you you can't get around how New York Elf is. It's great. <laughs> He's going around to all the buildings. You know, you get the big. I mean, New York at Christmas is amazing, and and to see all of that play out in Hitch, and and him interacting with all the characters, and you getting a feel for. Uh, what's funny about it is they did some of these like man on the street style where he goes up and is interacting with people who don't know that he's acting. Mm-hmm. And it's just so New York. Their reactions are so New York, including like the red jogger suit Santa guy. who yeah. wasn't a character. He was just literally a red jogger <laughs> suit Santa guy <laughs> that he was going up and messing with. I mean, it's, it's just so New York. It's great. It gives you the lighter side of New York, the fun um, the ability to poke fun at themselves uh, at times is, is, is great. All right. Well, that is our discussion on movies that exemplify New York. If you have ones that you think you really, really like and that really exemplify New York City to you, send them our way. We'd love to hear from you and see what it is that you love about New York City movies. All right, let's move on to the watch list. Movies that we watched over the last week and a few thoughts on them. Rob, what'd you watch? Is it called Getting Even With Dad? Yes. It's oh, called Getting Even With Dad. I watched one. it last night. That's a great Macaulay one. I love Culkin that one. and Ted Danson. Yes. And Macaulay Culkin is dropped off at Ted Danson's doorstep. He's his son. Basically like, you're going to take care of this kid now. Little does Macaulay Culkin's character know that Ted Danson is actively planning uh, a robbery had gone to prison before for robbery and the whole movie is him trying to get rid of this kid this kid trying to get his dad to pay attention to him and along the way there's an undercover female cop who falls in love with that dancing's character and it's a lot of 1990s corny comedy with a little kid mm-hmm. you know what you're getting with Macaulay Culkin is what is it like 11 12 probably around then and ted dancing with hair like lots of hair like long hair hair. very strange very uncomfortable he also looked pretty jacked it was weird (laughs) i'm not used to ted Ted dancing being like an attractive person (laughs) but uh yeah that's the movie that i watched this week i didn't really watch a whole lot of other stuff because i had a lot of other stuff going on (laughs) yeah Yeah, well, that was a good one. I really enjoyed that one as a kid. I think that was underrated. And that is on HBO Max, in case you are interested in watching it yourself. Yeah, you should. It, it got, it's got all the fun of a Macaulay Culkin kid film and actually some pretty decent heist type stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you'll enjoy it. They need to make more movies. We've talked about this before. They need to make more movies like that. Yeah, lighthearted, family-oriented movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nowadays, they're just like, I'll just put out a cartoon for kids. That'll be fine. All right. For me, I watched a number of movies this uh, this past week, um, partially because I spent a day or two homesick, so that allows for lots of movie watching. Um, I watched The Thomas Crown Affair, the 1999 version. That's like my sister's favorite movie, so she's, yeah. she's clapping. <laughs> Well, it's it's uh, it's really it's actually quite a good movie. And it's an interesting, slightly different take on a heist movie. Uh, It does not spend nearly as much time on the mechanics of the heists and more about the game. 
It's more about the contest and the game and uh, the intrigue. Because basically the entire movie, uh, Rene Russo knows that Pierce Brosnan did it. Pierce Brosnan knows that she knows that he did it. And they're just playing back and forth, uh, playing coy with each other the entire time. And it's, it's just a fascinating display of character-based acting. And, and the character interaction and their interplay between each other is what drives the story and drives the intrigue. And so they don't spend nearly as much time on the mechanics of the heists, uh, but they do, they do give you a couple of good moments of, of uh, how did he do that? So yeah, very good movie. Thomas Crown Affair in 1999. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I watched, uh, I'll just mention briefly, I watched The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Khan! Khan! Like the face he makes when he says Khan is Khan. Uh, but I think the most, the most legendary thing that come out of that, aside from the Khan character himself, was the whole Kobayashi Maru scenario and, and about the idea of the no-win situation and can you cheat a no-win situation. It, it's come up quite a lot. It's a, it's a very good philosophical underpinning to the Wrath of Khan. Uh, I watched The Last Blockbuster, the documentary on mm. The Last Blockbuster. Mm, who would have guessed yeah this is a netflix documentary and i thought it was slightly self-serving because they spent a section on how netflix did not kill blockbuster <laughs> so i don't know if there was a little bit of self-serving interest there for them putting this yeah. out to say hey it wasn't entirely our Most fault high netflix <laughs> <laughs> it is fascinating that netflix put out a documentary about blockbuster netflix is holding this knife like uh, I don't know how I got this and why it has blockbuster blood on it. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, but I remember, I, and they do a, they spend a brief moment talking about the whole revenue share thing. How how blockbuster was once an innovative customer company that actually, uh, through their innovative strategies, actually pushed out all the mom and pops, uh, mom and pop stores, and it, it goes into a little bit about why they, that happened. Because I remember that as a kid, like all the mom and pop stores just went away overnight. And, and it explains a little bit about that. <laughs> this is Keith again. Yep. He's here now. Yeah. How, how am I supposed to get my hand off you when you're playing on me? Anyway. The last one I watched, and I won't cover We've talked about this before, but I'll just mention something briefly about it. The last one I watched was The Rhythm Section. Good movie. Good movie. I rewatched it because I just finished reading the book. And we talked a few weeks ago on a po on the podcast about book conversions to movies. This one was particularly intriguing because they changed an awful lot between the book and the movie. And I was interested to find out that it was actually the original author who did the screenplay. But one of the reasons why it was so different was because the book came out in 1999 and the movie was put out in 2020. So there's a 21 year gap between the book and the movie. And a lot of stuff changed in that time frame. I mean, this, the, the book came out and the book talks about hijacking planes and using them for terrorism. Um, so that landscape has clearly changed since 1999. 
Plus, as terrorism has evolved over the years, um, some of the things in there are, are very different. Also, uh, you see in the movie how they pare down characters. They pare down the number of characters to make the story simpler and more cohesive. Uh, so whereas in the book, they have an entire organization she's working with. In the movie, it's one guy. And yeah. that's kind of how they that's kind of how they do that with movies is because you have less time to tell stories, everything has to get a little simpler. But I really do like the movie. And, and again, Blake Lively is excellent. All right. So we're going to close out the podcast today by giving you a recommendation. <laughs> and we got to let Rob go because uh, Rob's just trying to hold it together over here. Yeah, I'm dealing with all kinds of shenanigans over here. I don't even, I don't even know anymore. All right. So historical battle movie, historical battle movie, recommend a historical battle movie, Rob. Well, I'm going to recommend more than one because I'm just breaking all the rules. So, oh, have um, 1930, I'll quiet on the Western Front. If you mm. haven't watched it, watch it. It's black and white. I don't care if you're bored. It's classic for a reason. Uh, looking at World War One and how the kids in Germany were fed propaganda that led them to go to battle and die for their country. Um, it's a reminder, sobering reminder that can happen anywhere to anyone. Um, so all quiet on the Western Front, 1930. Another one I would recommend is Black Hawk Down about uh, soldiers in Mogadishu, which much like Saving Private Ryan has a whole bunch of appearances by a whole bunch of people who would become much more famous later on down the road. So Black Hawk Down. And then uh, honorable mention, which is not actually about a battle, but it's about the society around these things is Swing Kids. Um, one of my favorite movies about music, but it's also about the Nazi regime, World War II, and how these kids had to hide underground to be able to listen to swing music because a lot of it was done by either Black artists or by Jewish artists, which both were kind of frowned upon by the Third Reich. And just the intensity of emotion and passion that they put into being able to do what they loved is uh, it's a movie that's always stuck with me and I need to watch it again soon because it's, it's powerful. So I gave three, sorry. That's all right. I'm only giving one. So. All right. Even so. <laughs> average uh, to two. So. Yeah. It'll average to two. So it'll work. Yeah. There we go. Mine is a 2004 movie Troy starring Brad Pitt, Eric Bana, Orlando Bloom. And this is an adaption of Homer's uh, epic, The Odyssey. And this is an excellent, excellent uh, movie. And um, one of the things I like most about it is um, the way they interweave uh, the consequences of the act of falling in love with Helen of Troy and how that plays out amongst the Royal family in Troy or uh, yeah, in Troy and, and everything that goes into play there. Uh, the acting is superb and, and really the, the way that the way that Brad Pitt's character um, how that plays out is him being Achilles 
and how he he's basically ready to leave the battle. And, and then something happens and his nephew gets killed and all of a sudden that changes the entire scope of the war. Um, but it's fun to get to see the whole Trojan horse thing play out because it's such a cliche uh, of modern times, but just to actually watch where that originate and be able to see that. Um, it's, it's a classic film. And, and I think it was, it was, there was a number of great period pieces uh, from the early 2000s. And this is, this is one of the top ones, I would say. Sweet. All right. Well, that is the podcast. Thank you for tuning in to film for fans. And if do us a favor, rate, subscribe, tell your friends, um, harass Rob about being distracted on the podcast. Any of those type of things are all fine. Uh, but until next time, enjoy the movies. <laughs>